we love you. Oh, we're grateful for life. We're grateful for August. We're grateful for family. We're grateful for the scriptures. We're grateful for tonight. Every gift is from you. Every good gift comes from the Father of Heavenly Lights that has no shifting shadows, no change. You're constant, Lord, and your love for us never fails. And so as we open our minds, our thoughts to hear from you, I pray it won't just be a lecture or a talk, but God, that you would dig something deep into our souls that will follow you more deeply, that will live more like you, Lord Jesus, and in that the world would know that a Savior has come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, Mark 2, we're going to start in verse 13 here in a minute. Uh, as we do, it was really cool. Last night, uh, I had the privilege of going over to the Harringtons. Jim and Linda sitting in the front over here. And they open up their home, as other families do here, once a month for a thing called the Sunset Party. And so if you're new or if you're coming or you're just visiting, how do you get connected? Well, we decided, rather than a class per se, that the first step ought to be going into a home of someone who's a part of the community and having some burgers like last night, or you've done some brisket, and having a meal together, no agenda, no lecture, no sermon, but just a chance to meet other people and talk and laugh and have a good time. So if you haven't been to it, or if you've come and you still haven't connected with other people every month, I think it's usually the third Saturday, we'll tell you when the next one is, we invite you to the sunset party. Um, right before going to that, I, I was at a birthday party uh, for Jamie Haley, who's I think here somewhere, and it was her 29th birthday again. And um, you can evidently have the 29th birthday multiple times. I think my wife has had it once. She's, she's still, tw still 29. And, but, you know, like you could have your little birthday party. And so that was great. So I went from a meal to a meal. And the beautiful thing is nothing happens here at Solid Rock without food. We don't do anything. If there's no food, we don't do it. Why? Because we take Jesus seriously. And Jesus loved food. Just look at Mark chapter 2, verse 13. It says, once again, Jesus went outside uh, beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him, Jesus, eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, so we're seeing in a string, if you were here last week, there are five encounters in Mark chapter 2 that are all about the same thing. People are opposed to Jesus from the beginning of his work, from the moment of his baptism on, the leaders are against him, and Mark little by little is telling us why. Well, Jesus was in the synagogue last week, but now he's out there uh, by the lake and he's teaching, and that's Jesus, and I love it. Jesus does not wait to talk about God till a Sunday night here in an auditorium. Jesus is talking about Yahweh. He's talking about the Father wherever he's at. So on Saturday, their Sabbath, he's talking about the Father. And when he's by the lake, if people are around, he is a teacher. Good reminder to all of us 
that our faith in Jesus is not a Sunday thing. It's not a gathered thing. It's an everyday, all the time thing. When is it a good time to bring up Jesus? When is it a good time to talk about the things of God? The answer is yes. It's always a good time, and that's what we see Jesus doing. He's teaching by the lake. It says, a large crowd, verse 13, followed him. He begins to teach them, and as he's walking along, he sees Levi. Now, Levi later on, we think, is the person he calls Matthew, so don't get thrown off by Levi. We think he's Matthew, and he's sitting at his tax collector's booth. And for some reason, uh, Mark is going to let us know about his job. Did you notice the phrase tax collector in this little paragraph. Tax collector sinners, tax collector sinners, tax collector sinners, Levi, who is at his tax collector's booth. What's the big deal here? Well, uh, at the time of Jesus, around 4 BC, uh, Herod the Great died, and the Roman Empire was all together. But when Herod dies, he has this huge empire, and it's split between three of his sons. So at the time of Jesus, as they walked around, there were three different governments going on at the same time. And Capernaum, where it sits in the north in Galilee, was led by Herod Antipas. But Herod Antipas's brother, Philip, owned the other land to the east. Point being, instead of one land with one taxes, now, at the time of Jesus, Levi is not just an IRS agent. He's actually, we think, a toll collector. Think Portland downtown. You're going on your date. And if you forget to put something in your window, what happens? Friend comes over and they write you a, a parking ticket. In, in a similar way, we think that Levi is a toll collector and he's getting money for the government. Because of where Capernaum sits, it sits almost on the border of this other empire. So, so Levi is not liked. Why? Because people remember when you could travel these roads and not pay taxes. And now they have to pay. More than that, it's not just when you go. If you are shipping any goods, if you're selling anything, and you bring it into Capernaum, you're going to have to go by Levi's booth. And so there was a time where there was more freedom, but now uh, people don't like him because they didn't have to pay, and now they have to pay. More than that, Levi is a Jew. This is a double whammy. The reason Mark's telling us about Levi is because he is the least likely person to follow Jesus. Jesus should not be talking to Levi. Why? As a good Jew, you avoided as much as you could contact with non-Jews uh, to be pure, uh, to be ceremonially clean, to go into worship. You stayed within the community. But Levi, because of his job, interacted with non-Jews all the time. And so he's a friend or he interacts with Gentiles. So good religious people don't like Levi because of the job that he's taken. More than that, he's not allowed to go into synagogue. He's probably a disgrace to his parents. And he is in collusion with Herod Antipas, which is a Roman leader who's overtaken God's holy land. So if you're a Jew, you want the Romans kicked out. But instead of Levi being for those to get rid of Rome, Levi works for Rome. So he has every reason, Jesus has every reason to avoid, as a matter of fact, he should avoid Levi. But for some reason, what do we see here? Verse 14, as he walks along, he saw Levi at his tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And I think this is the first important thing that we see is, is that Jesus is the one who comes to Levi's booth. 
Jesus is the one who is pursuing Levi. Levi isn't looking for Jesus. Jesus is looking for him. If you go back to uh, Mark 1, we won't do it, and you look at the account of uh, Jesus going to Simon and Andrew and James and John, it's the same thing. Jesus finds them fishing. Jesus comes to their village. Jesus invites them to be a follower. Beautiful pattern for life. If you are following Jesus tonight, and I hope you are, it is not because you found Jesus. It's not because you came into the light. It's because Jesus was looking for you. Now, at some point, you became aware of it. But the beauty of the good news, the beauty of the gospel, is not that we love God. John, uh, John says it in 1 John. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. So any, any semblance of relationship that you and I have with Jesus is because Jesus was pursuing you and me. And that is such good news. Because I don't know your story, but most of us would say, I am not the kind of person that Jesus should be looking for, or I've missed my opportunity, or I've blown it. And if you've blown it and you've messed up on multiple occasions, you can still smile. God is not done with you. It's not over. And like Levi, who is a repeat offender, according to the Jews, because of his lifestyle, because of his job, and oh, by the way, tax collectors were cheats. They had a give the taxes to Rome, but no one knew what the tax was. So when you go by and, and Levi sees your load of fish, like uh, Andrew and Simon and James and John, they were probably taxed by Levi. They didn't know what the tax was, so Levi can impose as much tax as he wants. He gives the right amount to Rome, and he keeps the rest, and he puts it in his pocket. So tax collectors are wealthy on the backs of those who are honest. And so think about Jesus with James and John and Simon and Andrew. They all walk up to the booth and Jesus invites Levi in. What did Simon and Andrew think? What did James and John think? There's another uh, disciple. We don't know if he was already joined at this time. Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were anti-Rome. They wanted to crush Rome. And here Jesus invites someone who is in working for Rome. And so this is the kind of Jesus we serve. He's the one that looks for the least likely and draws them in. Jesus is looking for Levi. Now we're going to see the contrast. Why is this important? Follow me, verse 14 says, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many, so now it started with one, Levi's in, now many tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there are many who followed him. Verse 16 introduces a new group. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw this. So who are the Pharisees? This is the first time we're going to see them. We're going to see them all throughout the rest of Mark's gospel. The Pharisees are one of the many groups that were interpreting the Bible. Just like if you, if you go and you look at the church landscape, uh, there's solid rock. There are other churches, whether it's Baptist or Methodist or Episcopalian. There are lots of groups that read the scriptures, follow Jesus. And there, were, there wasn't one interpretation of the Bible at the time of Jesus. The Pharisees were only about 1% of the population. There were only about 6,000 of them. But they were highly influential because they would be the people today that had the TV programs, the huge podcasts, the radio programs, they were the Bible teachers. They were serious about Scripture. They were committed to God. 
These are not the bad guys. Hear this. If you grew up in church, the Pharisees, evil. They're not evil. They love God, and God has given us his word to guide us in relationship. And what they were concerned about is the people didn't care about the Bible. And they believed, rightfully so. As a matter of fact, Jesus most often sides with the Pharisees when it comes to the Bible. He thinks that they're right on most fronts, although not this one tonight. But, but what, what were the Pharisees standing for? They believed that Israel was in judgment because they had dishonored God and didn't obey the Bible. And so their hope was to reteach the Bible to God's people. And their, their belief was if they could get all of God's people to obey the scriptures on one day, that God would come and see that they had fulfilled their part of the law and he would bring freedom. They were under bondage because of disobedience, but God would send a rescuer. Freedom would come if we would just get into the book and know it and live it. So how do you follow the Bible? There was a series of traditions and teachings. There's the written word, which we have, but there was also the oral law, the how do you follow the written word? And so the, the, the Pharisees collected these. And they took them seriously because all they wanted to do was to follow the scriptures. They were anti-compromise. They believed that most of Israel had gone too liberal and that they, they, they didn't obey the scriptures. And so they wanted to bring Israel back. Now, the two things that they looked for carefully, we're going to see, because Mark tells us both in chapters 2 and 3, were, how do you know if someone's following? It's by food, how you handle food and how you handle Sabbath. It's interesting, Mark gives us a story tonight about food, and then we're going to see next week about Sabbath, because the Pharisees were particular. Um, there were laws in Leviticus that dictated how the priests were supposed to operate their home, and this is a side rabbit trail, but this is going to be helpful, um, how they, they were supposed to operate their home, how they were supposed to keep things clean, because the priests served God in the temple. And so the priests needed to be right before God in order to bring worship and represent God's people. So the Pharisees took all of these laws that were intended for priests, and they said, well, all Israel has messed up. So what we need is not just the priests, we need all of Israel to, to follow these strict dietary laws in their home. What God had intended for a few people to have as rules for the temple where God dwelt they now took and made as rules and regulations for how you cooked at home. Now, which sounds like good and right, and they're trying to take it seriously, but uh, some of you watch the NBA Finals. It would be like the coaches who are coaching LeBron James taking those same rules, laws, training programs, and taking it to fifth graders in a schoolyard and say, all right, come on, come on, 10-year-olds, come on, 11-year-olds. We want you to play basketball like LeBron. LeBron has his own set of rules, and you can't impose it. And sometimes if you see coaches uh, um, trying to impose these, like, come on, you need to do this to young athletes, one of two things happens. One, they take it more seriously and they rise up, but two, more often they stop playing the game. Because a coach gets so serious with the rules that the game no longer becomes fun. Well, in, in this state, they had gone so thick on the rules that it was hard. So Jesus' word to the Pharisees, they had the right goal, holiness, rightness before God. But Jesus is going to speak against them because their approach totally missed the heart of God. 
Well, how, how, do we, how do we know this? Jesus is eating in Levi's house, verse 15, with tax collectors and sinners. There are many who followed him. So verse 16, the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, they see Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors. Who are the sinners? What is a sinner? Well, a sinner could be a cheat. It could be someone who'd murdered. Or it could be simply someone, according to the Pharisees, who didn't take God's laws strictly. And so the Pharisees had imposed not just the Bible rules, which are good, but the rules about the Bible rules to the point where they would consider anyone who didn't take strict dietary laws seriously, they would consider them a sinner. So Jesus is confusing to them because he's eating with them and they ask the disciples the key question, why is he doing this? Why would he eat with tax collectors and with sinners? And, and Jesus' reply is stunning. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous people, but good people. So Jesus is having a meal. Tonight we're going to look at two stories, this one and the next one, that is all about food. Why do we do food all the time here? Why is food so important in the Christian life? It's because food is about more than food. Jesus, it says, is eating with them. Uh, literally, he's reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. you got to know that in the first century, the people that you eat with, you accept them, not just as a, a lunch partner. Here, we eat with anybody. We drink with anybody. Anyone could be our friend. But in the first century, it's way different. The person that you brought into your house to have a meal with, especially if you're the host of the party, if they have an evil reputation, a bad reputation, by you inviting them to the house, you're, you're validating what they do. So you wouldn't bring someone like a tax collector or a sinner into your house because you're saying you accept them. Uh, the term is called table fellowship. In the first century, the person who eats at your table, you bring them in as a friend. Now, the way this is phrased in Greek implies not that Levi is the host. The implication is Jesus is the host of the party. It's one thing for someone to invite Jesus into a room and he stumbles in and like, oh, there are a few people that have an evil reputation, but he doesn't want to dishonor his host. So Jesus kind of slips in, has an hors d'oeuvre and leaves. No, the implication here is Jesus hosts the party for Levi and all of his tax collector friends and people who have an evil reputation according to the Pharisees. Now, why in the world would Jesus accept these people? What made the Pharisees mad is it's okay to yell at or rebuke a sinner. It is not okay to eat with them. But Jesus is radical because Jesus has the heart of the Father. And the heart of the Father, the heart of God, the heart of the Creator is not to push people away. The Pharisees use food as a litmus test to push people out. So the only people I'm going to eat with are people who are exactly like me, who have exact religious standards, who are precise, who honor God full on. And if you're not in my crowd, I will not eat with you. So food is a barrier to push people out. But what we see in Jesus is he uses food as the invitation to draw people in. Jesus says this phrase, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Um, I'm going to put up a quote by one of the commentators, N.T. Wright. He says, why a doctor? Because Jesus went around healing people, not just 
people with physical ailments, but people like Levi who had become, here's a key phrase, social outcasts because of the job that they did or the lives that they led. And, and why a party? Because Jesus' vision of the kingdom of God, like that of the ancient biblical prophets, Isaiah in particular, was of a great feast to which everyone was invited and people didn't like it. What made the religious leaders mad is that Jesus used food to draw people in, but Jesus is, is just picking up on the prophets coming before him and that when God's rule comes, which they saw as not happening in their lifetime, they believed that God had left because of their disobedience. But when God comes, it will be like a feast. There'll be more than enough. It will be like a party. Now, today we have lunch for 30 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. A two-hour lunch would be a long thing. In the Middle East in the first century, if you're having a meal like this, reclining at a table, this could have gone on for three, four, five, six hours well into the night. There's no rush. You're literally laying with your feet extended out on a couch, on a mat, and you're talking life. You're investing. And if you want to know what Jesus' attitude towards you, if you don't care about him, if you hate him, if you despise him, if you break all of his rules, is Jesus, if you are open, is willing to bring you in. He's willing to bring me in, and he's willing to recline at the table and listen. Jesus here is not preaching. He's not condemning. He's not Bible thumping. He's enjoying. And he is saying by his actions and his words, you are welcome to life with God. But the Pharisees, although in their heart they wanted to do the right thing, they wanted God to rule, but their methods were off. More rules and more regulations does not mean that my character will be more in line with the kingdom of God. But if I'll get to know Jesus in a relatable way and begin to learn of his ways, then what he has is more attractive by nature because his way is better. And so that's what we see in the story. And it totally confused the Pharisees and they wanted to kill him because no good rabbi would ever eat with people like Jesus did. And I just wonder, those of us now, let's just apply this, those of us who follow him now, how do we live this out? Who are the people that we invite to eat? Who are the people that we welcome in? Who are the people that we're looking for? Jesus goes to the tax collector's booth and says, come on, you're invited. Are we that kind of people or are we more comfortable sitting in our own little group with people who think like us, talk like us, act like us. Jesus is about everyone being invited to the party. Those who've already followed and those who've yet to follow. But now it goes from a feast to a fast. Look at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were, fat, were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not. So now they have another problem, again, around food. Food was about more than just food. It was about marking out who's accepted and who's rejected, who loves God and who doesn't. Verse 19, Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as, he, as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. And in a moment, he's going to explain that. But what's going on here? How many times a year are the people of God required to fast? How many times a year? 
Once, very good, once. On the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day where the high priest brings the sacrifice in to atone for the sin of the people, one day a year, the people of God are called to fast for 24 hours, prepare their hearts, clean themselves and say, God, I need you, I need your forgiveness. More than food, more than drink, I want you. One day a year. But the oral law, the teachings, said there may be other reasons to fast, to prepare your heart for the presence of God, to clean yourself up, to want God more than other things. And so it started with a few, but now it got to the point where Jesus is living and the Pharisees fast every Monday and Thursday, twice a week. Instead of once a year, it's 104 times a year. What started as a simple prepare your heart to be forgiven of sin, has now become twice a week. Now, you weren't required to, but here's what the Pharisees said. Those who are serious about God's Torah, about God's law, will fast. So fasting became this marker of spirituality. What they were doing on the outside, and the Pharisees made sure that, they, that you knew they were fasting. So they made themselves look disheveled on the days of fasting to prove to the people they really follow Torah. Do you? And food, which is meant to be eaten as a delight before God, it's a gift from God. They used it as a manipulative tool to say, you guys aren't really spiritual. So they asked, uh, Jesus, this makes no sense. John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast. The Pharisees, we fast. How about you and your disciples? And what does Jesus do? He says, wait a minute. There is a time when no one fasts. And in the first century, when is it? It's during a wedding. The rabbis were not to fast. If there's any celebration in all of life, a wedding was the hugest party in the community. So even if it was a day of fasting, if there was a wedding going on, you cannot fast during a wedding. What's a wedding today? 30 minutes, long-winded, an hour and a half, right? For a wedding ceremony. 30 minutes is like, you know, 30 to 45, that's enough. And then we want out and we want to go to the reception. And reception is two, three, four, five hours. You know, in most other cultures, it's a full day affair. First century, it's seven days. Non-stop party. Seven days. A wedding was a week-long affair, and it was cause for celebration. And so what Jesus is saying, the invitation of God, the good news is of God, is not fast, somber. Oh, I'm hurting. Look, I'm sick. No, it's a, it's a feast. It's a wedding celebration. And Jesus says, as long as I'm here, the invitation is to life. So what do, you think it, what do you think it means to have life with God? It's about God is enough, and that causes us to celebrate. You see this bride and this groom. They have no idea the pain and heartache they're about to have. They have no idea the bills. They have no idea the struggles. And those of us who are married, we don't say that on the wedding day, do you? You'd be evil if you said, son, you're about to die. You know, you, that's evil. no. But what you say is, let me tell you, you look amazing and your wife is beautiful. And then you go home and chuckle. But, but for seven days, you just celebrate. It's the gift of God. God made men, he made women, and he made food. And so all of us can eat and drink and celebrate the gift of God. And Jesus says, my coming, the kingdom of God, is more about a party than about summer. Yes, there's a time to fast. Once a year. But there's cause for celebration when someone like Levi is coming into the kingdom of God. That's reason to celebrate. It's like a wedding. 
But Jesus does hint about what's to happen. Look, look at what he says in verse 20. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Jesus is already predicting. He's hinting. When Jesus is taken away, there will be a day to fast. There will be a time for fasting, but not now. The kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God comes, it's about food, it's about abundance, it's about celebration. It is not about lack. And that gives us insight into the mission of Jesus. Jesus is bringing a stark contrast between the Pharisees' approach to religion and spirituality and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is all about celebration. Tonight, if you choose to follow Jesus, tonight, if you choose to admit your own sinfulness before God, and before these other people, and say, Jesus, like Levi, I want to be one of your followers. I feel disqualified, but I want to follow you. I don't even know how, but I'm willing to take that first step. Jesus says, it's as big a party as a wedding feast. And so there's great cause for celebration. But the Pharisees did not get it. So Jesus gives two illustrations that say the same thing. Let's read them, verse 21 and following. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. Which I don't get that because I don't, I don't do like repair. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. We use bottles or like a box if you're really <laughs> frugal. Um, <laughs> otherwise, the wineskins will burst and both the wine and the wineskins will be what? Ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Jesus gives two very ordinary illustrations. Cloth that doesn't match. It's going to tear apart. It won't work. And they reused wineskins. But if you try to put new wine in it and have it ferment in it, it'll burst. It won't work. New wine has to go in new skins. And what Jesus is saying is a strong statement He's saying the old rigid system that the Pharisees have put together to try to people bring into alignment. Now, again, the goal of the Pharisees is good, that we live holy lives before God and that God would come and deliver us. But their approach was far from the heart of God. And so maybe that's you. You know, many of us, if we've had any bit of Christian background, maybe yours was more like the Pharisees' approach. If you do this, 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 and go to these meetings, this, this, then, 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 and if you don't do this, 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 it's all about rules, it's all about structure, then God may receive you. That is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus is he's looking for you, and if you'll respond to his call by name, Levi, come follow me, then Jesus will turn you upside down and he will change you from the inside out. Jesus does the changing, and the law of God is good. Don't hear me wrong. I think most of us in America, we disregard the law altogether and say, who cares, I'll do what I want. The heart of God is that he's given us guardrails that are for life, and if we'll follow and walk in his ways and, and stay away from the things he says stay away from and follow in the path that he says is healthy and right and good, that won't achieve us rightness with God, but it will lead to fruit and joy, and peace. And haven't you found this to be true? In the times of your life, when you do life Jesus' way, it's just better. And it's harder, isn't it? I'm not saying it's the easier path, but aren't the hard things really sometimes most fruitful and beneficial and life-giving? 
And so the Pharisees approach rules first, then acceptance. And Jesus says, no, feast, eat, everyone's acceptance. So why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? The Son of Man, which Jesus calls himself, came for three reasons. If you look at the Gospels, we're going to throw it on the screen. The Son of Man came to serve. Mark 10, we're going to get to that eventually. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's one reason. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, Luke 19. The third, time, third phrase that we see with the Son of Man is Jesus came eating and drinking. You know, do you remember, some of you are a little bit older, one of these people is doing his own thing. Remember that one? One of the, anyway, I just aged myself there. I just showed my cards. Where they, on a TV show, they showed a picture and one didn't fit. And you had to point out, this is like grade school stuff, you had to point out one picture that didn't fit in all the pictures. And one of these that don't make sense is the bottom. Jesus comes to seek, save that which is lost. That's why he came. He came to serve and give his life. That's why he came. But he came eating and drinking. That's how he came. And the way Jesus comes tells us something about how we're to invite people into life with God. Jesus came eating and drinking. As a matter of fact, they called him a glutton and a drunkard. That was their accusation of Jesus. He ate too much and he drank too much with the wrong people. And so food, which can be an invitation to life, food became a barrier and called people out. So what does this mean for us as a people? One other slide. Uh, Tim Chester, who wrote a great book called A Meal with Jesus, says this about the early church. He says, meals were central to the life of the apostolic churches. That's the churches that the original 12 founded. And this is Acts 2. Day by day attending the temple, to get, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, and that was the early church. But then he says this, specially built church buildings only really take off when the Roman Empire officially becomes Christian. When is that? 300 years after the departure of Jesus. So after um, Constantine becomes a believer, it becomes the edict that Christianity is acceptable. Acceptable is, I think, 314 or something. Um, and churches begin to be built in the style of Roman temples. So churches begin to take on form just like the Romans. But during the apostolic period, that's the early few hundred years, churches met in homes around a meal. So when we say that the entry point to sunset or life in Jesus here is in a house over food, getting to know each other, we're just trying to draw ourselves back to the way that Jesus and his earlier followers did life. Because food was always supposed to be, in God's perspective and in Jesus' way of doing things, the means by which we are invited in. You could come to these gatherings for five years and not know anybody. Do you know when I get to know more about you? It's when I'm in a house or at a coffee shop and there's a few of us and we're hanging out and it was so cool last night just to meet some families. Maybe some of you are here tonight. And I would have never gotten to know the details of your story. We weren't able to really chat. But, but you put, they even did iced coffee. It was totally delicious with like coconut milk and raw sugar. I'm not an iced coffee person, but it was like, wow, I'd come for, for that. And, and, and around that informal setting in a backyard, sun theoretically shining, 
and food spread out. We're not looking at our watches like you are now. We're not, we're not in a rush. We're not, we're just there. And the goal is to be together, right? A couple of things that we should remember about food and eating. Why? Because our society is so far from this culture. We need to rediscover. And the church, to be honest, can lead the way in reteaching this culture about what it means to be human. The concept of fast food is like the last 60 to 70 years. And it's slightly demonic. That's another story altogether. But <laughs> the concept of fast food, think about it. Was food ever designed to be like received from a window <laughs> in a wrapper to be consumed while driving and texting on your phone? That was not God's design. Food in every culture around the world is a place where people talk and live. The average family has a meal together one to three times a week at the average time period of 20 minutes. It's no wonder we don't know each other. But the way of Jesus is better. So meals, what can we learn about meals? Meals are to be a celebration of God's grace. Meals for us, those of us who know Jesus, can be the moments of our day where we stop and we give thanks to God who's given us everything we have. It's a chance for us not just to consume, but to remember we got this because God has been gracious to us. But meals are more than just a celebration of God's grace. Meals are a catalyst for community. Real relationships can happen when we stop and take the time to eat, and we ought to do this more often. We need to look for more creative ways. The reason that we do the summer uh, uh, dinner thing afterwards is not just so that, oh, you know, you don't have to go out and get something to eat, but the goal is to build real relationships. You can make friendships that could be lifelong, healthy, life-giving relationships here in this community by going and getting a taco, getting an ice cream, and just saying hi. You never know what kind of good things God's going to want to do in your life. That's why most of the missional communities that meet, most meet in homes and most do it around food. Why? Because that's where we let our guard down. And that's where we take time for things that really matter. It's where you talk about the important stuff. Put a drink in your hand and you're willing to talk. It's, it's an absolute psychological truth. If you walk into a room and put a drink in someone's hand, they're more apt to talk. It's why coffee shops are a place where people get together because there's something about eating and drinking that just lets my guard down. Are you lacking community? Are you lacking, lacking real relationships? Ask God to give you more opportunities to eat with people that will, will build you up. You have 21 minimum opportunities to build community in your life every week if you eat three meals a day. Some of you do more than six meals a day. You just up the ante, you know. <laughs> you, have, you have so many opportunities to, to include others. Can I just encourage you with this? Eat alone as infrequently as possible with the goal that God could give you 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And sometimes you need your downtown. I get that. Downtown, I get that. 
but maybe we can celebrate this natural thing that we do as a God-given space to build friendship. So it's not only a catalyst for community, it's an invitation to follow Jesus. And that's why many of the people that Jesus invited to follow him, he immediately brought him into meal-type settings. And so Jesus is at weddings, and Jesus is in homes, and Jesus is eating and eating and eating and eating. And that is a good thing because it reminds us that the kingdom of God is about eating and drinking and enjoying and about real relationship. So we're inviting you to follow Jesus. And I, I encourage you, if you want to really follow him, it's not going to be just doing this once a week. It's going to be about getting out of here and finding other people that you may invite. So here's a great mission opportunity. You say, Jose, well, I'm not a great speaker. I don't know the Bible that well, but I want to be like Jesus. I want to invite people into the kingdom of God. It may be as simple as this. This week, who could you invite into your world? Maybe it's someone that's in the office, in the neighborhood that you normally wouldn't invite to a meal for whatever reason. What would it look like if you prayed and asked God for the opportunity to invite them out to eat and didn't do any of the talking, but simply said, tell me a bit of your story. Hey, I don't know you all that well, but tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Did you grow up in Oregon? And let it go from there. Tell me a little bit about the things you love to do. When you have downtime, how do you feel it? What really energizes you? Let them do the talking. And you never know in simple ways like that where God will give you the opportunity to bring up Jesus stuff. Some of us are waiting for the right opportunity to speak about Jesus. How about lunch? How about dinner? How about a coffee? That is the way of Jesus. So tonight, the invitation is quite simple. You can invite people into the kingdom of God. Every single one of us can be like Jesus, going to people, finding them by name, and bringing them into our world. And now that takes time, doesn't it? It does. It takes cost. It does. Is it worth it? Yes. My parents grew in their faith, not just by going to church on a Sunday, but I grew up and I have no memory without people in our living room on Thursday night opening their Bibles and having cake and coffee and laughing and crying and praying. And to me, that's what following Jesus is all about. And I pray that the same would be said for you. The big is good, but we need to celebrate the small. And so you and I have the opportunity to invite people to Jesus, but you need to know this. You're invited to follow Jesus, and that's where we want to land it tonight. Like Jesus invited Levi, now Jesus invites you. Follow me. And Jesus is just waiting right here and right now to lovingly invade your mess and bring life. To rip out the things that are self-destructive and replace it with his Holy Spirit who is love, who is joy, who is peace, who is gentleness, who is patient, who is kindness, who is kindness, who has self-control. The Holy Spirit of God, God himself living within you can give you life if you let him. But tonight the invitation is to follow Jesus. Uh, afterwards, we're going to end our gathering by inviting you to a meal. And if you're ready to follow Jesus, you can do that even right now. And I think the greatest celebration would be as you eat your taco or burrito or pupusa or whatever you consume, that you would be able to find some new people and simply say, you know what? 
tonight I got one step closer to Jesus. That would make the whole thing worth it. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've come to give us life and life to the full. And so, Lord Jesus, you know the heart of everyone here. You know what's going on. You're not surprised by any of this. And Lord, tonight, we desperately want to follow you in a way that honors you. So God, help us, in, even in our following. Lord Jesus, show us how to be more hospitable. Lord Jesus, show us how to slow down. Lord Jesus, show us how to be more open in the way that we treat our downtime. Jesus, help us to see every opportunity as a good opportunity to invite people in to know us and to know you. Jesus, we want to we follow you well. We want to live like you. And we come to your table tonight to be reminded that with you all things are possible to those who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.